hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. Have a sip, babies! Okay. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our fall lanyap. Ben, this season was relatively quiet, I think. There wasn't a whole lot that we were both watching that's completed. This was a relatively quiet season. For you. You may have checked out of this season, but I did not. I've been busy as hell. A lot of the stuff that you're watching now is stuff that's going to end up being winter stuff because it's not done yet. Yes? I finished 22 things this season. Okay, I did not watch anything close to that (laughs) (laughs) amount. In our lineup this season, we're going to answer a couple of very good letters that we got from listeners. We're going to catch up on a few things. Not the things that we said we were going to catch up on, but I think you'll find them interesting. Ben and one of our pod team guests are going to talk a few things that they watched that I did not, or she and I watched that Ben did not. Basically a two out of three kind of scenario for everything. And then we'll get into our normal things. We'll round off the summer. We will award Girl You Tried and we'll talk about what's coming up in the fall that we'll be talking about in the winter. Let's dive in. On to our letters. Hoikoik writes, if you could interview any of the QL directors, who would it be? And what kind of question would you really want to have answered? Jojo, I need to talk to Jojo so badly. (laughs) (laughs) We talk about off, we talk about tea, we talk about new, we talk about a lot of motherfuckers on this podcast. I need to talk to Jojo. What do you need to talk to Jojo about, Ben? Very seriously. I would love to talk to Jojo about casting and then the work of managing actors across 16 to 30 cues for these shows. Jojo is the director who most enjoys large scenes where a lot of the cast is present, long scenes that are going to run for five to 10 minutes sometimes. You can't just give a bunch of people the script and have them awkwardly stand there in their very strict blocking 
and trying and deliver dialogue and push in on everyone's face. So we just get a quick cut of someone fucking crying. Jojo is so good about getting the actor to embody the character and play out the scene. And Jojo's very good at making sure his actors understand the goal of the scene so that they can accomplish it as a group. He really likes action. There's multiple big fights in a Jojo show that involves so many people being together. It's not easy to write that kind of stuff or direct that kind of stuff. And I just would love to talk about that with Jojo. How does he select the actors who are going to play these characters? And how does he create this environment for them to improv through these scenes with each other? Because these scenes that he constructs are too complicated for him to narrowly direct them one point at a time. He has to tell them what the mission of the scene is. What are the beats we have to hit and what marks we can't miss? But otherwise, you guys need to play it and feel it the way it needs to be felt. And then he also asked them to play these scenes at different levels, which is also not easy. And yet all of his actors seem super energetic and amped about being on these sets with him. Everyone loves Jojo. How does he get this amount of performance out of people so consistently? And they're just so giddy about the work that they do. I want to talk to Jojo. I too want to talk to Jojo, but that's not going to be my pick. I really would like to get inside of the heads of most of the big directors, especially the Thai guys. There's a whole bunch of questions, for example, that I would want to ask Chiwen. But if I had to pick one director who I really want to talk to, it's Huang De Sol. I just want to crawl inside her mind and try to understand how she visualizes shots and movement. Because her work is so choreographed, but it feels natural. You talked about stiff blocking and standing and delivering your lines. Huang Dussel's actors are always moving. Always. The actors are moving, the camera is moving. Huang Dussel's work is so dynamic. One thing that people don't get, to move and act at the same time is super hard. To move and deliver your lines and hit your marks and make your body do what it needs to do at the same time that the right words are coming out of your mouth in the right way is extremely difficult. She does not go easy on her actors. She puts this difficult stuff in front of them and she more or less has to be confident that they're going to deliver what she envisions. And I just want to ask her, like, how do you do that? How does that come out of you in terms of your conceptualization of the thing? How do your actors respond to this? Because we don't see a ton of behind the scenes stuff coming out of Huang De Sol's work. So we don't have a complete sense of how that process works, but I really want to ask her about it. I definitely want to know how far back in the planning process a lot of that stuff is happening. Is it happening during the location scouting or during like the initial script writing? Or is she figuring it out on set with her cinematographer? 
when I talk about filmmaking and the things that draw me to filmmaking, that dynamism in direction, that whole idea of visualizing the thing and then making the thing happen, that level of, I guess the only word for it is control over the finished product. That's something that fascinates me to no end. I think you're right. It definitely feels like she has a strong sense of the totality of the process. Yeah, she sees it and she makes it happen. Like that's very clear from the work as it's put on the screen. Like when it comes across to you, you know, there's no ambiguity in her work. It's very clear what she's trying to say, who the characters are, what their super objectives are. And that's not just conveyed in the writing. It's also conveyed by the production, the images, the everything. I want to crawl inside her head. Wade My Turtles. Hi, Turtles! Writes, Ben Sensei, I need to be educated about the following bit in the Thai BL industry. I'm loving Absolute Zero by Nusawaj, and I Feel You Linger in the Air by T-Bundit. But I was afraid of starting these shows at first because these two have had recently remarkable duds. New with Between Us, Screenwriting for Double Savage, Boss and a Babe, T with Step by Step and Hidden Agenda. What's the deal with their consistency or lack thereof? Clearly Absolute Zero and I Feel You Linger in the Air are set up as prestige BLs. But why can't New and T achieve a more even-keeled production line? Hmm. New and T are specialists in a niche genre that is constantly in flux as the people funding it are trying to find success. There is no formula for BL success. Certain things you can regurgitate over and over again, and people eat that shit up. But BL as a romance genre is not something that's very well understood. I don't think the the money nerds behind the scene have fully identified what's the exact formula to making a successful BL. There's still a lot of experimentation that's going on, and they're still relying on a lot of trusting the instincts of the directors themselves. With T and New... They both have studios that need to work to feed the people working with and for them. D-Hub House has staff who need to be paid. New has Studio Wabi Sabi and his stable of actors. So they're going to take on a lot of work, regardless of whether or not they're exactly suited for it. T. Bundit has very strong feelings that are evident in a lot of his work about how the societal structures around queer people encase them and inform the choices that they have. The 1920s and 30s is a great place for T. to unpack the historical aspects of homophobia and its impact on people. T. Also, I don't think is the strongest 
at the romance component of these stories either. And he is better served by actors with really strong chemistry carrying the romance part while he works out some of his other stuff. I have not watched Tarn Tight, but reportedly Mew and Golf had really great chemistry on set. I think Ben and Man had really great chemistry in Step by Step. I think the two guys, one of them being Nut, I can't remember the other guy's name, on Something in My Room. I thought those two were really good together. T is at his best when he is allowed to play with a complicated setting itself. And so giving him a historical and building out the specificity of that and how it's impacting the leads and informing them is where T is going to be good. One of the things that New is really good at is he cares so much about the minutia of every little thing that happens in his stories. All of New's shows get bogged down in trying to track all the fucking details that have happened across them so that they don't get fucking missed. I feel a little bit strongly about that. I didn't realize how strongly I felt about the tedium with which he executes his work. He can get really lost in minor shit. But that's really well suited to doing a time travel story where the micro details of minor choices matters a whole lot because little decisions have potentially long-term impacts. And I feel you linger in the air in absolute zero. T and New can play to their strengths. And the reason why they can't do this all the time, to get back to the question you ask at the end, is they have to be mercenary. They have to take on projects because they have to work. They have to make sure that their people get paid. And that means that sometimes some of their projects are going to be duds. And we can be a little bit sensitive to that because it's a small industry and we talk about it all the time. I hadn't thought about it in the sense of these two shows playing to the individual director's strengths, but that does make a lot of sense. They're not always going to be working on projects that play to their strengths, not just because they have to be mercenary, but also because sometimes you pick a project and it's a dud. Sometimes you pick something that you think is going to be successful and then you get into it and you realize you don't exactly have everything that this story needs for you to be the one who tells it. And that's fine. In terms of the hit rate, I think that they're both doing okay, I guess. I am more annoyed by New than I am by T, but that's a personal thing. I have not written off either of these directors yet. I still think that their strongest work is ahead of them. I mean, they're only in their early 30s. They're going to be fine, guys. <laughs> I'm not shading you, but just in general, I've been in these gay streets trying to watch my stories for over 20 years. The modern era of BL turns 10 next year. It's going to be okay, y'all. Just stick around. Like, I did the math the other day. We had 22 shows that I recorded watching from 2019. I watched 22 this past season. We're fine. (laughs) 
Here we are in our catch-up corner. We had some plans. Those plans did not materialize. So we are not talking about Light on Me and Mama Gogo as planned. But Ben watched a couple of things that he's going to talk about with... Shan, who is here? Say hi to the people, Shan. Hi to the people. So for those of you who might not be familiar with our transcription project, Shan is one of our lovely transcription team responsible for editing the transcripts that you see now when we post our episodes. Shan, tell the people what coupons you cashed in with Ben. I don't remember the exact context, but at some point, one of our friends had started watching a lot of K-dramas that I was recommending to her. And Ben mentioned that he had really watched very few. And he kind of challenged me. He was like, all right, I'll give you one. You pick one K-drama for me to watch and we'll see if I like it. And I knew exactly what to have him watch right away. And so I recommended Coffee Prince. And let me just give you a little spoiler alert. He liked it so much that he then gave me 50 hours worth of coupons that I could use to make him watch whatever I wanted. As a result of getting that little bank of hours, I then had him watch the Pornographer series. And so I think we're going to talk about both of them. So I have not watched Coffee Prince. And I think I watched pieces of the pornographer way back when I was starting to watch BL. I'm not even sure which part of it that I watched. I don't know if I watched it in the correct order. I don't remember much about it. So basically, this catch-up corner is about Shannon Ben convincing me, very skeptical, very time-constrained me, to watch The Pornographer and Coffee Prince. So, guys, Take it away. Let's start with the pornographer. Ben, tell the people, what is the pornographer about? The pornographer is about really sad, little fucked up gay people tormenting each other and having sex along the way. The novelist, the first story, opens up with a guy who's a student in his second or third year of his university studies. He's riding his bike and he crashes into this guy and injures him. The man he injures reveals that he's an author. And because our protagonist is poor, he agrees to write for the writer until his hand heals. We learn very quickly that the novelist is an erotic fiction writer. And... Our protagonist, Haruhiko Kuzumi, is not prepared for the type of writing he's going to engage with. There's this whole psychological battle going on the whole time because Kijima, the novelist, is playing with Kuzumi's head the whole time and trying to encourage some sort of sexual awakening in Kuzumi the whole time. And things really blow up in their faces as things get a little too real. Kijima's editor, Kido, ends up coming into the picture, and it was very clear that these two had fucked before. 
What's so fascinating about this particular show is how, frankly, this show tackled sexual intimacy. In the first show in particular, there's a lot of really intense fantasy sexual sequences because of the novel portion of it, but all of the actual sex that occurs between people is a bit sloppy and messy. And there's this kind of raw component to the whole experience that feels so visceral. As a note for you, Nini, this is from the same writer and team that gave us The End of the World with you. It's broken up across a couple of projects. So the first project is The Novelist, which is mostly about the novelist and Hirohiko, who's transcribing for him. And how Hirohiko ends up falling for him along the way. But they can't exactly be together properly at the end of it. We transitioned into Mood Indigo, which was a prequel. Shan can attest that I was super ambivalent about going into a prequel after the intense emotional work of the first show. I was more looking forward to seeing more of Kuzumi and Kijima trying to figure out how to be together as a bunch of fucking weirdos, as opposed to doing backstory on his relationship with Kido. But Mood Indigo is really good. Like, I actually think Mood Indigo is the strongest outing from the entire pornographer franchise. This details how Kijima became an erotic novelist, his complex relationship with his mentor, who only picks him because Kijima blows Kido in front of him in their very first meeting at his order. Unhinged. This sounds very familiar. So this is probably the one that I saw. So Nini, you've only seen the prequel, but not the main story. So it's really interesting because I feel like Mood Indigo works because it's a prequel. We know the sort of really messed up place that Kijima and Kido are going to be in by the time we get to the novelist. So it was really fascinating to see like how exactly these two are going to mess each other up. It was using our knowledge of the future really well. There's this whole messed up dynamic in Mood Indigo because Kido's kind of down on his luck and so is Kijima. He gives Kijima the opportunity to be an erotic novelist to try and help him get some money and get back on his feet. He and Kido end up in a very complicated sexual relationship as a result of this. But they can't work out because Kido values heteronormativity in a way that won't allow him to full commit to Kijima, despite being super duper in him. To put it mildly, we end Mood Indigo back in the present with Kijima going to see Kuzumi. We get a small break with the Spring Life short, and then we get the final film, the pornographer playback. About the time where Kijima is living in the countryside with his family, it's not really going great because he's a gay little weirdo and he doesn't get along with his family. And so he runs away from them a bit, ends up living with a woman who runs a little dive bar and her son. And it becomes super messy. Kijima is such a fucking piece of work that he says some cruel shit to Kuzumi. It is a hot mess of a relationship. And yet I was deeply compelled the whole time. What separates this particular franchise 
from most of the BL that we normally deal with is it has a very frank and matter-of-fact understanding of sexuality and sexual identity. Nobody has to say the words, like, I'm gay, etc., I'm queer, whatever. We understand these elements of the characters, and we know that Kijima's core struggles are about how he is othered from the people around him. And he has a strong sense of worthlessness because he will never conform to the expectations that are expected of a Japanese man of his age and maybe intellect. It's fantastic. Like I said at the end of my review, if you are an actual gay male in BL and you have not watched this franchise, you absolutely need to watch this franchise. So Ben's made his pitch. Sean, let me hear your pitch. One of the reasons that I go so hard for the show and that I was so excited for Ben to watch it is because I knew he was going to love it. And it has been really overlooked. The Pornographer series is kind of dark psychologically and overtly sexual in a way that seems to make a lot of BL fandom uncomfortable, frankly. A lot of folks have turned away from this show or chosen not to look at it because of those things. And it's always seemed like such a waste to me because it's one of the best BL series that I've seen. It's got some really interesting things to say, and it's a story for adults, which there's so little of. If you like a story about a protagonist who is difficult to love, who struggles to let himself connect with other people, and who really goes through some crazy character development over the course of these different segments of the stories. This is such a rewarding character journey. It's really worth it to hunt it all down and watch it properly. It's very clear from what y'all are saying that having watched it when I did and the way I did, that I didn't get it. And so maybe it might be worth me taking another look at it I find myself inching towards convinced. How many hours is it? Just under seven hours total, which I added up when I was counting for my coupons. Um, (laughs) And I will say, Nini, I know how important the use of sexual intimacy for story is to you. And I will say that this show is one of the best I've seen on that front. Ben, one of my favorite things when you were watching it was that as we would approach the end of any given segment of the story, You would always be like, I got to see this happen. This is what they owe me. Usually talking about some moment of intimacy that hasn't happened yet. Every single time you anticipated what was coming because the storyline and the character moments were so mapped to the physical intimacy. I think my favorite moment of that was coming out of Mood Indigo. I was like, all right, enough of this shit with Kido and Rio. I need to see Harihiko blow Kijima. We get to spring life, and that's the first thing that happens. Literally the first thing that happens. (laughs) I believe that you have convinced me to try again. I think what keeps lingering with me with this show is I've been complaining on the podcast politely and in our chats less politely. Politely? (laughs) About how I want BL to be gayer. 
Part of why I feel myself being really grumpy as we recorded for this season was I had watched The Pornographer now, and it feels like BL has taken a step backwards compared to where The Pornographer left us. There's just a quiet, understated queerness to this show. It's good. Genuinely so. There's no real caveats for me on this one. It's such an incredibly legible piece that even as it gets a little weird and a little dark, I don't think you ever feel the need to like clench your remote because you're worried the show is going to do something unforgivable. And it's really hard to build audience trust that way. Even without Shan and Turtle's reassurance, I felt like I was communing with the project the whole time I was watching each piece of this. All right, well, sold. Bang the gavel. Okay. <laughs> okay, you guys, sell me on Coffee Prince. Now, I have heard of Coffee Prince, of course, as a K-drama fan who has not heard of Coffee Prince. I have a hard and fast rule, unfortunately, about the earliest K-dramas that I will watch for style reasons. I get weird in my head about things. Y'all know that. So I have not watched it, although it does star one of my favorite actors, Gong Yu. So sell me on it. Tell me, guys, why should I watch Coffee Prince? You should watch Coffee Prince because... Gong Yu is beautiful. <laughs> he is! Number one reason. I have watched Gong Yu be beautiful in so many things. Why this thing? This is the original place where his beauty became known to the people. <laughs> okay, a more serious answer. Our friend Susan, who was with us for the Epitome panel, called it a proto-BL. It's from 2007. The primary drama is about this tomboy named Goyun Chan, who is the breadwinner for her family because their dad died when she was young. She's a poor person who's just hustling, trying to make ends meet for her kind of frivolous mom and her maybe not necessarily focused on what she needs to be sister. A misunderstanding occurs where Gong Yu's character believes she's a boy and eventually hires her to be part of this coffee shop he has to open up because his grandmother's tired of him just mooching off of their rich family. And he wants to open a coffee shop whose whole draw is there's a bunch of hot boys working in it. He and Yun Chan end up falling for each other and what's really fascinating about this whole project is Choi Han Gul, who's Gong Yu's character, he has a legitimate queer awakening as a result of his attraction to our protagonist. We know she's a girl, and most of the other characters either know or learn soon along the way. And it's fascinating because this show got to have its cake and eat it too. They got to put a very queer narrative in front of the national audience because as far as the Hets are concerned, this is a straight romance with gender hijinks. But for everybody who can read, 
this was a very complicated queer narrative about a person with a complex relationship with gender and a guy who ends up discovering queerness in himself as a result of loving her. All of the drama that unfolds in this show is earned. Choi Han-gyul, when he eventually learns last that Goyeon Chan is a girl, he is fucking pissed that they let him remain confused, that they knew what he was going through, and no one told him. He felt hurt and embarrassed by that. And he stayed hurt and embarrassed about it for like four episodes. And these are not short episodes. So what you're saying is we have here K-drama sneaking queer shit past its audience. And nobody told me this until right now. I definitely told you this. I tell everybody who will listen about this. (laughs) You said, oh, you should watch Coffee Prince. But I'm just like, okay, I mute the channel. I love (laughs) y'all, but still. I definitely did not get that part of it. Because I'm always fascinated by what Korea gets away with putting in front of their audiences. Korea is so conservative. And the media landscape is so conservative. Movies are one thing. Movies are different. But TV is super conservative. Yeah, and let me tell you what, Nini. Gong Yu committed to this role and to the portrayal of, they don't use the word, but what is essentially a bisexual awakening for his character, Han Gyul. It's very clear what's happening to anyone who's able to read this kind of subtext, which is barely subtext in this story. But it's also subtle enough that a mainstream audience can choose to overlook it if they just don't want to see it. But he fully commits to this. We see this man experiencing clear desire towards this person that he thinks is a boy. We see him struggle with it. We see him yearning and pining. It gets very romantic. And all of this happens. The first kiss happens. The decision to be together happens. These moments of like wanting to touch and touching and then pulling away. All of this happens while he thinks Unchan is boy. He has made all of his decisions and gone through his entire journey before he finds out the truth. There's a joking description of this show as a Mulan coffee shop AU. And they wouldn't necessarily be wrong. Not Mulan! Oh my god. <laughs> you know Mulan's one of my absolute faves. Their initial reason they start hanging out is he hires Goyun Chan to be his boyfriend so that all of these arranged dates that his grandmother keeps setting off can fail. So he keeps just bringing his boyfriend, TM, to these dates and pissing off all these girls so that they'll fuck off. Wait, wait, so while having a queer awakening, also pretending to be queer for queer reasons? Yeah, but that part falls off fairly quickly. Like, he's only doing that part just because of the arranged marriage stuff and these, like, blind dates he keeps getting set on. It's because he's a chai bowl nini and his grandma wants him to get married. Okay, well, that makes sense. That's very K-drama. The only reason I didn't give the show a 10 is there's the Psy couple. And the hat's got in my fucking <laughs> nerves. He, he hates them. <laughs> Every time I mess in shit, I'm like, how much more of these messy hats do I have to deal with? They're so fucking involved in this story. They got on my damn nerves. But I kind of like them because... The queer couple 
is actually super stable and you just wish they would stop fussing with each other and be just a little bit nicer to each other because they would be fine if they get over this sort of misunderstanding going on between them. But the Hets are so dysfunctional the whole fucking time. Oh my God. I kind of liked it in that regard. Like you're rooting for the gay people because they're not aggravating. It's the straight people who are getting on your fucking nerves the whole show. Ben, I'm curious about one of the barriers, as Nini kind of said, to watching Coffee Prince for a lot of people is that it's just old. This show is 16 years old now, and it looks old. I think sometime around maybe 2012, 2013, K-drama crossed the Rubicon into the look that we're kind of used to from it now, which is very high production quality. This is in the before time. And it also has a lot of classic old K-drama tropes, like a lot of gross-out humor. So I'm curious how long it took you to adjust to the style of the show. The hair. The hair. The hair is a massive <laughs> problem for me. Terrible. I'm sorry. It just, it's just, the hair is just bad. You're being real nice. I'm just going to call it out. The hair is trash. Anything K-drama made before like 2016, the hair is garbage. Forget about it. It is not nearly at boys over flowers level. (laughs) Yet another classic K-drama that I refuse to watch. I adapt very quickly. But again, like I talked about this on the show before, I grew up watching indie queer cinema. My tolerance for varying levels and quality is a lot higher than other people. I'm bougie about a lot of things. But I don't really get mad about people using what they got. I tend to be very forgiving if other parts of it are very strong. So Coffee Prince does look old. But in terms of the storytelling being executed by everyone involved, I feel like it took the rest of Weird TV making a really long time to catch up to where this show was in 2007. One of the things that this show got correct that most BL doesn't is that gays and weirdos clump, whether they realize it or not. Gong Yu's character discovers queerness in himself. Goyun Chan is experiencing gender the whole time. No Sungi. He's clearly a weirdo. And then the other guy in their thing, Harim, he is flirting with Yun Chen the whole time. And when he figures out what's going on, he gets so mad about it. And I was like, bro, you need to go do some reflecting on your own about why you're so mad here. Because like, it was clear to me that he was in love with Gong Yu's character and did not know it. Oh, yeah. That was also subtext that felt like text, almost. It got right up to the edge. This felt like an unintentional little queer fun family. Okay, so I'm taking in everything that's been said to me, and my verdict here is this goes for me in the light on me bucket of I know I'm going to watch it. I know I have to watch it. I know I'm going to enjoy it when I do watch it, but there's something in the production that I have to get past in order to watch it. So in terms of catch-ups, I think I will catch up on both of these shows. All in good time. Probably will get around to the Pornographer series before I will get around to Coffee Prince. But winter break is coming. 
for posterity, let's tell the audience what happened with you catching up on Light on Me and me watching Mama Gogo. <sighs> Guys, I don't know what I was thinking. My big old ass decided to go back to school. And that involved, among other things, an international move. <laughs> so I am under it these days. And light on me, just, I'm sorry, guys, it fell by the wayside as I struggle to keep up with everything in my real, actual life. But I am committed and devoted to this podcast. It's just like, what happens is going to happen. And what doesn't happen is going to not happen. And y'all will forgive me because I have already forgiven myself. I'm not asking for forgiveness. I watched the first episode of Mama Gogo and it was not for me. And I moved on. <laughs> you really did not like that show. <laughs> I did not. I watched that first episode. I'm like, God damn, this is long. How many more of these are there? 16 episodes? Fuck that. See, Ben's relationship to camp is very different from mine. I am a camp whore, and Ben is more of an artsy French film genius. I like nonsense. I have not watched Mama Gogo yet, and I still intend to. It's on my list. I will get to it eventually. It was one of the ones that folks have told me I really should watch to have a better understanding of Earth and his range as an actor, and I've been working on that. Earth Parapat works out in <laughs> denim overalls. That's all I need to tell you about that. Right, now I'm definitely going to watch it at some point. I'm going to give it a try. I have watched Light on Me. It's one of my favorites. I've watched it more than once. And I hope that you do eventually find time for it, Nini, because it's a great show. So I think that we are no longer going to make any promises on Catch Up Corner. Y'all are just going to be surprised every season from now on. We were going to talk about Be Mine Superstar and Hidden Agenda, but unfortunately, both of those shows were shit. So to get that out of the way, for those who cared about things that we didn't even promise to you, but were on our board. <laughs> Let's talk about Be Mine Superstar. Ben, what is Be Mine Superstar about? It's about a obsessed fan and his chance at falling in love with the superstar he loves. Han gets a chance through his work study to work on the set where Ashi is, and the two of them end up becoming close. A romance blossom between them, and a bunch of other stupid shit happens in this kind of a boring mess of a show. Stupid shit is the definition of this show, and that's actually kind of why I liked it. Y'all, this show is dumb. It's so dumb. It's beyond dumb. But for me, it was dumb and really entertaining. I had a good time with this dumb little show. I especially enjoyed Jaws' performance as Pun. Jaws playing like this really goofy, younger character, while first plays this kind of stoic enigmatic figure that he's chasing. One of the best parts of the show for me that I really enjoyed is because, of course, it's set among actors and in the entertainment industry. 
there's a show within the show and y'all the show within the show is it's like a version of Kunchai. It's very dramatic Lakhan that they're making inside of the show. And the actual show itself kind of mirrors the mood of the show within the show in that it's a little over the top, kind of stupid. I had a good time with it. I had fun. Ben has other views. So the only reason I was able to actually finish the show is because I watched it with Aiden, who was with us on the Let's Say episode. We use it as boy time to hang out and talk shit about OBL. The show became boring for us right around the time that Ashi was doing the prep for his movie role. You were like, oh no, he's going to use his relationship with Pun as inspiration to play his character, and then that's going to get revealed later, and it's going to be really stupid. And that's exactly what happened, and it was stupid and boring. And that was really the biggest problem with this show. They tell us that the Ashi character is growing out of his shell, but it never feels like it because they have first playing such an enigmatic character. And then... Ja is playing just a horny goofball who can't really do much. And I was like, this is it? This is who you chose? All right, whatever. But you see, I kind of like that he can't do much because the kid's got literally nothing but heart. He cannot do a damn thing. He is incapable of the most basic functional tasks. He can't cook. He can't clean. He's not even a strong back. All he can do is drive. And smile, and well, apparently he's a sexual savant, which makes total sense. He is completely incapable of any kind of caretaking activities, but all he wants to do is take care of this guy that he fell in love with forever ago. He just goes into everything that he is 100% flailing and failing at with this general positive can-do attitude. And it's really kind of endearing. And you kind of see why and how a she falls for it. If somebody's so bad at everything, but they just keep doing it with a smile on their face, it's kind of fun. You kind of want to respond to that. At least I did. I really enjoyed that Pun was mostly incapable of doing anything. I really had a good time with that character. Like I think Pun's character is the character that I enjoyed most in the show. For me, at least it was the character that made the most sense. I completely 100% got what Zhao was doing with Pan. I got the Pan character. I understood immediately all the decisions that he made. The other characters weren't as clear to me as Pan was. No, and it sucked because I liked what they gave first to do. They mostly just make him play cutesy against Ja. So they wanted to stretch first this time because they're keeping him on contract. And so I liked that we got to see a good amount of range from first. The big problem is I don't have the attention span for cute. Especially with there being constantly nine plus shows out that are half decent to watch. I get spoiled by the shows that have something to say. So watching this demo reel, it just got super dull for me very quickly. 
the tagline, I guess, is gonna be the show is dumb and kind of pointless, but somehow the vibes were immaculate for me. <laughs> it doesn't really have anything to say. It's not about anything. I just found it fun. Ben did not find it fun. It is what it is. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. The show sucked. I liked everybody. Truly. Sincerely. I liked everyone in it. I hope that the demo footage was good and you get some good projects next. I gave it a seven because that's what I give shows that just do exactly enough for me. I gave a show a five. It was just really stupid and it was boring. And it's really hard for me to let some of that go. All right. So a seven for me, a five from Ben works out to a six. Mm, Sounds legit. Sounds reasonable. So let's close the book on Be Mine Superstar and wish Ja all the best in his future non-acting endeavors. I hope whenever we visit Thailand, he gets to be our pilot. Hidden Agenda, or as I like to call it, I have got some words for you, T. Bundit. Ben, what is Hidden Agenda about? Nothing. It was 12 weeks of nothing. (laughs) It was just guys being dudes. (laughs) For fuck's sake. There's just so much random shit that happened in the show. If this show had been pitched to a slice of life thing... Maybe I wouldn't be so irked about it, but it feels like they were trying to construct like a long BL arc and it was dull and a waste of our time. And for all that T has biting commentary all the time about family dynamics and personal and professional dynamics, I cannot believe that this show climaxes on so meeting jokes parents for the first time and then low-key reading the dad once and that like fixed all of the issues joke and his dad had with each other okay the show was bad i'm gonna speak directly into the microphone t bundit tt t my boy my guy let's have a little conversation here So, this formless mess that you put out on GMMTV, right? Not the wave. Look, with tea, even if the method is messy, I usually get the point. But I did not get the point of the show. Was there a point? No, see, the problem is he wasn't telling anyone to go fuck themselves in this show. All of his shows... That have something going on in them. He's salty about something. And he's going to make you fucking sit in that shit for a while. And it doesn't happen here. He's not salty enough about anything here. And so nothing happens. When it comes to a show, I need to be able to follow one of two things. There either needs to be a narrative through line that makes sense to me. Or there needs to be a thematic or emotional through line that makes sense to me. If there's a thematic or emotional through line and the narrative is a little wonky, I can still rock with it, like a step-by-step. 
if I'm struggling a little bit with the thematic through line or the emotional through line, but the narrative of solid, I'll give it to them. Like, never let me go. Here, I have nothing to hold on to. The narrative doesn't make any sense to me. And thematically, I don't understand what the show is about. It was just June and Duncan friends vibing. The only people with any vibes are June, Oh, and Boom. I enjoy June. I think June is talented and very charming as an actor. I enjoyed Oh and Boom, and I did enjoy that little side plot of Jeng and Pop. I thought that the acting was solid. Boom is not an actor that has been on my radar, but he did a solid job on this and definitely impressed me. There were some emotional scenes, and I think he hit the emotional target on those scenes perfectly, not over, not under, just perfectly. And I liked Owen Boom's dynamic acting together as well. My second time seeing them. I think they did a good job in Vice Versa. And I think they did- oh, you know I didn't watch Vice Versa. I'm just offering context from some of the other losses I've taken. Ain't nobody got time for that. They wasted my time with Guy and Pod because you don't tease Guy and Pod for me and then give me literally five minutes across 12 episodes with me. What two. the hell was the point of that either? Here's the thing. I don't care. This sucked. This was a waste of our goddamn time. They wasted AJ. They wasted Louie. What was Arm even there for? JV did some good work, but she was also wasted. They just got a bunch of people together and turned the camera on and said, I mean, I guess. And they put together a show out of that. It wasn't even funny. It wasn't anything. It wasn't romantic. It wasn't funny. It wasn't romantic. It wasn't rage-inducing. It did not elicit or engender any kind of strong or even medium-strength emotion. Such a flaccid show. Flaccid is exactly the word for it. The show was loose. The show was loose. It was flaccid. It was unnecessary it was unpatriotic no it wasn't unpatriotic because it wasn't offensive unpatriotic (laughs) yeah (laughs) i can't even say it was bad it just wasn't anything it was just a slightly wet fart (laughs) sure so of course okay let me count up the things that i enjoyed chung owen boom the Four minutes and 27 seconds of Guy and Pod we did get to see. Eh, I'll give it a four. I gave it a six because it wasn't offensive. Like, you have to offend me for me to push under six. All right. So four and a six average five. I think that's generous, but we're going to let it ride. Like, don't watch it, y'all. Like, sincerely. I won't say don't watch it. I will say... If you enjoy looking at Jung's or Dunk's or both of their faces, their faces are doing some quality work in here. But if you're actually looking for, like, a piece of entertaining television, this is a solid don't bother. Watch it if you're bored. We have a longer-than-usual grab bag this season. Because we watched, well, 
Ben and our special guest, Shan, who is here again. Say hi, Shan. Hi. Ben and Shan watch stuff. I watched a little bit of stuff. So, yeah, let's just talk about some of the stuff that we watched that didn't make it into an episode. Let's start with Minato's Laundromat 2, which Ben and Shan watched and I did not. Okay, Ben, take it away. I usually get asked the question about what is the show, what's it about, etc. I'm going to just go directly to Shan for once and ask you before we talk about how this show shat the bed, why were you excited about Minato 2 going into this show, Shan? This question's like a shiv directly to my heart. Okay, so I watched Minato's Laundromat 1, and it's a really good show. It was a classic age gap BL. You had Shin, the younger character, really actively pursuing his lifelong crush, his older swim coach, this very repressed, closeted man who did not have any idea what to do with the desire of this young, beautiful man who really wanted to be with him. And that's what season one was about, was them finding their way to each other. I was kind of frustrated at the end of season one because it felt like we didn't actually get to see Minato grow in that season. He kind of stayed the same. He was very anxious all the time. He was very uncomfortable with his sexuality and with his attraction to Shin, very uncomfortable with frank expression of desire. And none of that really changed. He kind of ended season one in the same place where he began and just capitulated basically to Shin's very active pursuit, but didn't really seem to grow at all himself as a person. And so the reason that I was excited about season two after seeing the first couple episodes was because I realized that's what it was about. Okay, now we're going to see the part where Minato comes into his own sense of self and maturity as ironically the older person in this relationship, figures out how to be comfortable with his sexuality, with the fact that he does like this person, that he does want to be in a relationship with him, and kind of figures out how to deal with his shit and make it work in a long-term relationship. That's what this season set out to be about, and that's what I was really excited about because I felt like it was going to be that character growth that we didn't get in the first season. An excellent summation. Thank you, Shan. And then it all went to shit. (laughs) Echoing some of what you discussed, (laughs) Minato is one of my favorite gay characters that we've had in the genre in a long time because he's out in the way that a lot of people post-closet are out. Minato projects that he's comfortable with the fact that he's gay. Like, he'll tell you casually that he is. But he's not comfortable with being gay in a practical way. And Shin presented all sorts of different challenges for him because Shin's honest and forthright about his attraction in a way that Minato wasn't capable of really receiving. He's still working through the internalized homophobia that still grips him. Also, he was concerned about how they might be perceived because he's 10 years older than Shin. And so he had a lot of justifiable hangups going into the relationship, even if he was out and self-actualized. And so we got into the second season, and for almost nine episodes, I was having a really good time. The season did the slow 
ugly work of peeling back all sorts of layers of bullshit that the closet inflicts upon you as these two were getting into a relationship. Because we only jumped ahead three months from where we had left them. And the premise of this season is they're just starting to date. Minato is still adjusting to what that reality means. And some circumstances arise in which Minato has to move into a different house for a bit because the apartment complex he lives in is being demolished and rebuilt. Shin's family home also needed repair at the same time. And so his family was briefly displaced while they were doing renovations on his home as well. And the family, who knows about Shin and Minato, agrees to let him live with Minato for a while. And we got to see the two of them living and cohabitating together. It was really solid before they introduced an entirely stupid amnesia plot to try and, I guess, force Minato to grow. Since Shan is our drama expert, Shan, how don't you unpack the use of the amnesia trope and how absolutely fucked it was in this show? Just to really underline the point here, Minato's Laundromat has always been a show that has been very firmly grounded in reality, very much about the mundane day-to-day grind of life. So for the amnesia trope to show up in this show of all shows is especially egregious. I've seen a lot of amnesia plots in a lot of dramas, but this has got to be one of the most absurd versions I have ever seen. Shin didn't forget things from a certain time point or memories that were specifically associated with a traumatic event. These are the ways that you normally see amnesia present in drama. It's definitely still not realistic, but it feels a little bit more like something that could feasibly happen in real life. But no... In Minato's Laundromat 2, Shin gets really magical, special drama amnesia that allows him to forget only one person, Minato, and every memory he's ever had with him. So basically, just huge swaths of his memory, all tied to Minato for his entire life, now missing. But what's extra funny about it is that this huge gap in his memory doesn't seem to have affected him in any other way. All his other cognitive abilities, totally fine. He's in med school. Apparently that's not a problem. He's right back at school a couple days later. He's going about his life. He's doing his normal shit. Absolutely nothing's wrong, except he just can't remember this one person. In all of my drama watching, this is without a doubt the most ridiculous version of the amnesia trope I have ever seen. They stretched this out, this amnesia plot, for three entire episodes It didn't make any sense from the basic common sense and science level, but it also just didn't make any sense emotionally. It didn't track with the conflict that we had been dealing with for the first nine episodes. It's like the show got bored with its own plot in the middle and then just was like, forget that. Let's do this instead. It was one of the most jarring things I've ever experienced. I really hate that a show that was genuinely grounded in some of the slow but ugly work it takes To be loved coming out of the closet of your own mind. To just throw that away on drama nonsense. And I'm so disappointed that a show that was genuinely good, if slow, completely shat the bed. 
And what's so frustrating too is that they tried to then tack on this happy resolution at the end. The magical letter trigger happens and Shin gets his memories back, runs to Minato, and they reconcile. And then they try to give us this happy epilogue where they go back home together and they actually finally have sex. And then the morning after, Minato demonstrates growth again by not immediately shying away, actually kissing Shin in the street and telling him directly that he loves him. All of that, if they had just stuck with the narrative they were on through the end of episode nine and finished it, that could have felt so exciting, so earned, like such a reward at the end of a long character journey. But because they interspersed that with three episodes of drama nonsense that didn't make any sense, it just felt random. It didn't feel like we had earned it at all. It didn't feel like the characters had earned it. It didn't feel like it was coming from anywhere authentic. And so to see the thing that we'd been waiting so long happen, but to not feel any of that payoff because they fucked it up so bad was just extra, extra frustrating. So, Shan, what did you rate the first season? I rated season one a nine. And what did you rate the second season? I rated the second season what I think is a very generous seven. I wouldn't tell anyone to watch the second season. We have, in fact, dissuaded some of our friends from finishing it. (laughs) (laughs) Would I recommend this to other people? No, I wouldn't. It's a waste of time. I rated the first season a nine five. I've rated the second season at a six. You betrayed your characters in what feels like a ratings ploy. I don't like it. Bottom line is, I have not watched it. I will not watch it. Nothing that y'all have said is going to convince me to watch it. It's a chop. Let's move on. The next show on the list for our grab bag is My Beloved, Ben's Beloved, Why Are You, Korea? <laughs> I can't believe you both watched that. For fuck's sake. I can't believe Ben watched it. If there's one thing we've established on this goddamn show, it's that I ain't shit and I'm gonna watch most of the stuff that airs. As much shit as Ben was giving me, Ben was talking out his neck. Why are you watching that? What is he doing? He's watching it. Mm -hmm. I heard you, sir. I got you. I was very excited about Why Are You Korea? Because I expected it to be bad. And I just wanted to see what version of bad we were going to get. And I ended up being pleasantly surprised, actually. I wasn't. I did not think it was good. I also did not think it was bad. If it didn't have the why are you baggage, if it didn't have the name that is going to create certain expectations in people's heads, I think it could have been a cute little non-parade. It was cute enough. It just wasn't why are you. Let me just say, I am not a fan of why are you, the story. I don't like the supernatural conceit about the girl's cracked out novel coming to life. The problem with why are you is they're trying to do this cool thing about how Fujoshi eyes make girls misread male interactions. That's actually really good. But the crossover emotionally from antagonistic to romantic just did not happen for me on screen in a way that translated legibly. 
it does not seem like it happened for the people who liked it either. Ben hates it. I do not hate it, but I also do not love it. Sean, did you watch Why Are You Korea? Sure didn't, and I never intend to. (laughs) As soon as this project got announced, I was like, why? We don't need this. We don't actually need Korea's take on everything. They're not good at everything. The only good thing about that show was the heat, and I knew Korea wasn't going to bring it. So just zero interest. Absolutely nothing you've said here has changed my mind about that. The reason that I thought it was kind of cute is because I actually like the Saifazon story in this version. I like the Saifazon story in the Thai version too, but I liked it slightly better here, even though it didn't hang all the way together. I ignored the Fright to Future story because it was not good in this version. <laughs> Bottom line, why are you Korea? Inessential. I'm not even going to give it a score. Oh, I scored it. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you sucked ass in 2020 and I gave it a six? And it sucked ass in 2023 and I gave it a six. Consistency, thy name is Benjamin. Let's move into something we actually liked. Let's talk about Sing My Crush. Guys, adorable and very queer and heartbreaking in some ways and i wanted to commit murder of one particular character and i just really enjoyed the emotional experience of watching sing my crush ben what is sing my crush about normally i would say something really snarky but i'm gonna just jump into it because the show is important this show is about a young man named han baram who has aspirations as a singer and songwriter Towards what felt like the end of high school-ish, he was taking music lessons from this guy who's slightly older than him. He developed a crush on him and tried to confess his feelings with a song he wrote called Letter of Apology. I knew I was going to love this boy from the very beginning. His confession song was Letter of Apology, and I was like, I'm 1000% on board. His confession does not go well with the teacher who undercuts his confession and then tells him to just forget about it, which was cruel. Han Baram ended up running into another guy during his audition in the beginning, and these two ended up bonding and becoming friends. And Han Baram ends up developing a crush on his friend, whose name is Imhante. A few years later, they live together now and are trying to make their own little band function. The teacher went on to become a K-pop trainee. And then right as they were going to debut, they used a new song they wrote called Letter of Apology. And it's just his goddamn song. Stolen. So his teacher, who crushed his feelings and made him feel weird and has made him now hold back on his own feelings for someone else he has, stole his goddamn song from him. And then, when confronted about that, intimidated Han Baram and was like, if you tell anybody I stole your song, I will fucking out you. That man needs to die. (laughs) 
that's amazing. Like everybody in our little group who watched the show was like, oh, this was really cute. And right around episode four, it's like, this man needs to die immediately. I was just like, give me a shiv and an opportunity and I will kill this man. Everything he did to Param was nasty, but that in particular was the nastiest part because Param feels scared about the idea of being outed because of the way that this guy treated his confession when he did confess to him. So he's terrified of losing the people in his life. He knows that and he uses that to try to intimidate him. It was just gross and ugly. And like I said, give me a shiv and an opportunity. I will gut that man like a fish. I'm with you. I'll back you up. This show released in a way that was really unfortunate. By releasing the whole show at once, I didn't feel like I could just write about the show because as a critic, I have to respect spoiler culture. I hated this shit. Tom Barama is going to end up being one of the gay blorbos of the year for me. And I didn't feel like I wrote about that boy enough. I have more to say about this, but I want to cut to Shan because she watched this. Did you watch it with me or after me? I think you watched it and then you told me to immediately watch it. And I did. It's right in the sweet spot that Korean BL can hit when it's at its best, where you're feeling like it's a nice, fun, easy watch, but you're also really being taken on an emotional journey. The characters here, the two leads are great. Ben has already talked a lot about Baram and his experience of being rejected by his teacher and the confidence issues that that gave him. What I love about it is when he gets into this friendship with Im Hante, he's aware the entire time of his feelings for Hante. He knows, and they are close friends for years and roommates and working together. And every minute of that, Baram is fully aware that he is in love with him. On the opposite token, Hante is a very classic K-drama character archetype of the sweet, oblivious himbo. He is fully devoted to Baram, literally has built his life around making Baram's dreams come true. Signed a contract he wrote, basically saying, I only care about you. My life is yours now, right? He does all of that without any awareness of romantic feelings or like any understanding that his devotion to Baram could be romantic. He just doesn't think that way. And he's kind of oblivious about that side of things. Sometimes when you have a character like this, that's really oblivious while the other person's pining, it can end up being a really hard dynamic. This isn't like that at all. This is a situation where his intentions are so clearly good and his devotion is so clearly fully authentic that you never really get mad at him for not understanding the nature of his feelings. You just kind of want to root for him to get there. And you want to root for Baram to like feel the confidence that he needs to like admit what he's always known is true about their relationship. And it's just such a lovely journey to see them. They have such a fun friendship. They really like each other. And I feel like we don't get enough romances where it feels like the two people in the romance actually really just like each other. They like hanging out. They think each other are funny. They have a great time in each other's presence. You really get that in this one. It just feels like they're always having a great time, even as they haven't worked everything out. And then by the end, when they've fully figured out their feelings for each other, they feel so solid. You end this drama really feeling like, yeah, that couple's going to stay together. Yeah, Ben and I have talked a lot on the show about 
the difference between happy for now and like happily ever after and like honestly how genuinely rare the feeling is at the end of a drama that these two people are end game end game they are gonna make it because most of the time you just look at them and be like all right i can see where the cracks might form in the future they might make it they might not these two crazy kids are probably gonna make it i think these two are going to be fine because the core of their relationship is so strong. I ended up really liking the way the show handled the crossover where M. Hante tries to catch up to Han Baram's feelings, particularly because he cannot leave this boy. He tried to leave this boy like twice <laughs> during this show, and it lasted less than three hours. Packed his suitcase, <laughs> left the house. Screw you, I'm out, I'm not coming back, and was literally back the same day. (laughs) I love that boy so much. The biggest thing this show did was when they had a huge falling out, they literally fought about it. Imhante takes Hanbaram to the boxing gym that he goes to sometimes and forces Baram to physically vent out all of the frustrations that he's been holding back for years in an incredibly powerful scene. The two of them end up venting out all of the hurts that they were feeling, some about each other. So much of romance is written by women who have less than pleasant experiences with male anger, and I get that. But we feel... The full spectrum of emotions. There's this desire for the passion. But when men in romantic dramas are angry about genuinely awful things that have happened to them, or things that are just over the line, Han Baram's song was stolen from him. And he was made to feel gross about being queer by someone he trusted, who then try to intimidate him further into the closet. That boy deserved to be angry, and he wasn't. He just crumpled in on himself and was like, this is what I deserve. And I love Imhante not letting him do that, affirming you deserve to be angry, and you need to be angry about this. You have the right to protect yourself from these kinds of offenses and abuses. And that is not always attractive. I really loved that a gay character was told to be mad because he deserved to be mad. The show is good. Everybody, please go watch it. So I scored Sing My Crush a 9.5 because I had a couple of quibbles right, right, right at the end. Sean, what did you feel about it? I gave it a 9. This is a really, really good drama. I recommend it to anybody. It has some small flaws that you would expect to see in a production like this that has a shorter runtime, maybe doesn't have as much time to do everything they wanted to do. But I thought the core story was just so, so strong. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Ben, what do you say? Gave it a nine as well. In a lot of the side stuff or the smaller bits, I feel like some of that got rushed. 
we got what we needed, but there were a couple of things, particularly with the rest of the band, that I was hoping would have been developed more. And I gave it my usual KBL knocks for being a little bit precious about the intimacy. That being said, what we did get from this show was very satisfying. All right. So we averaged those out. Carry the one. I cannot not. It's a nine plus. Definitely watch it. Moving on to the final show for our grab bag, and that's going to be Heartstopper 2. I'm just going to let Shan go at it. Who is the premise of Heartstopper 2, and what were your thoughts on it? Heartstopper 2 is the immediate continuation of the first season of Heartstopper, which is based on a very long-running webcomic. It's about two boys in high school, Charlie and Nick, who become friends and then fall in love. The second season picks up with them settling into their dating life. They have a queer friend group. They are coming into themselves and adjusting to being in a relationship together. The thing that really gets my goat about this particular story is that I think we've talked a lot recently about some of the shows this year that have felt very authentically queer. This story doesn't really feel like that at all. This story feels to me like It was written with Charlie as an avatar for a teen girl. And that really, really came to the forefront in season two, particularly in the way that the show dealt with physical intimacy between this pair of teenage boys who are supposedly super hot for each other, but get extremely uncomfortable if anybody goes further than a neck kiss. Ben, what do you want to say about it? It goes kind of into the same place that Love, Simon sits for me. They're the kind of stories that make straight people feel better about gay people. And that's good. And I think the young queers need access to these kinds of stories. I actually think it's very good that the show helps young queers give language to not wanting to get hot and heavy right away with each other. I think that's necessary as well, even if I found Charlie and Nick's hangups around physical intimacy to not track with my experience. Charlie is very much coded as if he's the teen girl lead of a YA romance. There's a whole plot line where Charlie's parents find out that him and Nick are boyfriends, not just friends, and express all kinds of weird puritanical fear about them being alone together and say Nick can't spend the night anymore. That comes from heteronormative tropes that are based in the fact that girls can get pregnant if they engage in sexual activity. And that is why their parents are constantly guarding their virtue. Bothered me with Charlie's dad in particular, because I really liked Charlie's dad in the first season. Because he clearly knew everything that had happened to Charlie, or at least the important things about what had happened to Charlie about being bullied for being queer. And he seemed like a dad who had his son's back all the way. And it was super weird to have his dad suddenly be like, "Hmm, don't you leave no doors closed for boys around in this house all of a sudden. And that just didn't track for me. What really drives the point home and really rose my brows was there's a secondary love story in the second season between Elle and Tao. Elle is a black trans girl, and Tao is her male best friend. And 
in stark contrast to Charlie and Nick, who have been dating for months at this point, and we keep being told are in love and seem very into each other, but are unwilling to advance their physical intimacy beyond kissing. Elle and Tao immediately have a higher sexual velocity. As soon as they get together, they are sneaking off to hide in bathrooms and engage in sexual activity. And the contrast of that, of having the Black trans woman character be so immediately sexual while you are guarding the virtue of your white male lead was very striking to me. I did not like it at all. This is particularly notable because there are certain physical realities that a 16-year-old trans girl is going to be facing there. It felt so weird to just skip over any of Elle's feelings she might have had about some of her physical realities. And I get that Heartstopper is trying to be cute and accessible and it wants the parents to buy into this. So they're not going to maybe talk about that, but it was so weird for me that they just blitzed past that, particularly with how precious they were treating Charlie. Do you think that part of the issue is that the show is trying to do this mainstreaming thing. It feels like the show is trying to do the thing where it says it doesn't matter if you're gay, straight, trans, whatever flavor of queer, it's all the same, it's all love thing. I'm just going to break down the intersectionality here, okay? I am a Black woman. When people tell me, oh, it doesn't matter if you're like Black or white or green, I don't care. I'm like, no, actually it matters. And it doesn't just matter on like a societal level, but it matters because I am Black and that's part of me. I am a woman and that's part of me. These people have these identities, but they try to make these identities feel universal somehow. It's this kind of thing where everything gets whitewashed into this anybody, any personville where it doesn't matter. Love is love. Yes, love is love. But also there are realities of life and there are realities of identity and there are ways that people feel about their identities that I feel like the show just glosses over entirely. It's typical in these styles of dramas to let the side couple have a higher heat ceiling than your leads. We see that in BL constantly. The show does some things really, really well. Like, I don't like them being precious about Charlie having Nick around. But I actually thought it was really funny to have Elle's dad do the dad being protective of his little girl thing with Tao as a kind of joke bit. Because it's clear that their family treats Elle as the girl she is. And so he wanted to do the boyfriend coming over to take her on a date thing. Because he thought that was fun. Even though it's just fucking Tao. Her best friend. Who's always over. And so there are times when they do things that I'm like, okay, that was fun. And I'm really glad that they gave that to Elle. And then there are other times where it's like, hmm. They want to be a very diverse show. But they're not doing that work to get at the implications of the intersections of these identities. I feel like I'm coming across like I hate it. I don't hate the show. I think it's good that it exists for the reasons that you said, Ben. But I think it deserves a little bit more of a critical lens on it than it maybe gets. I don't enjoy the elevation of 
chased queer narratives as being somehow higher than the shows that aren't. It has always bothered me. And it's not necessarily fair to take that out on Heartstopper per se, but it is the primary chased show that is in the cultural consciousness right now. And I will shade it as a result. Because that's what we do on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. It's a good second outing. I'm very glad that Netflix locked it up so they're going to get completion on their own terms in a third season. Hooray, good for them. And it's fine, genuinely. It is a cute show. It's okay for people to like the little cute show. It has a banger soundtrack. I have nothing bad to say about the music. Yeah, sincerely, it was fun. It was enjoyable. I really like a lot of the work being done here. I didn't talk about them as much, but Tara and Darcy have a really solid arc this season. Her mom has a great bit. Like, your grandma doesn't know what's going on here. I don't mind you hanging out your little girlfriend, but y'all need to be careful. Try to keep things correct for y'all. I love their little friend group. It's Great. It is representative of the kind of complex queer friend groups a lot of us had. And I really liked their choice to bail on prom. That was so delightful. This whole buildup to, like, are we going to prom together? Are we going to come out of the closet? Darcy couldn't even make it to prom because her mom was being awful. And then they just hung out with each other instead. Delightful. I liked the adults in this season. I like the little quick storyline they got for Mr. Farouk with Mr. Ajayi. Like, I think it's totally great that the two teachers just hooked up on a school trip. Good for them. Good for them. I liked Coach Singh getting in their business and being like, you should get him out here. Tell him we need more chaperones. Come on, gays, get it together. I love that the married lesbian was like, get it together, gays. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked the way they finally resolved all of the shit with Ben Hope. The guy who used to be with Charlene bullied the shit out of him. You do not have to forgive your bullies. I was very into that. You know I love it when characters hold a grudge. <laughs> Shan is the number one hater in our friend group. <laughs> you don't have to forgive nobody for nothing. It's not a bad show. It's just it deserves a little bit of scrutiny around who it's actually for. Okay, so that's the grab bag. So, Ben, let's talk a little bit about how the summer went in terms of the shows that we watched. You watched a lot. You were booked and busy with the BLs. I was on a little bit of a pullback mission over the summer. I said at the end of the last season that I was tired in my brain and I needed mindless fun over the summer. And I think I largely stuck to that. You said that you were amped and you were ready to keep going. And I think you largely stuck to that. Uh, I refused to back down. I knew that if I just sat around thinking about La Pluie only, I would turn into the fan that I cannot be, which is a single show fan. I am not a single show fan. I am a queer cinephile. And I watch 
as much as I can and support as much as I can, I will not stop because there was one good show. Every good show is built on the sweat and tears and sometimes blood of the good shows that came before them. I will not stop. That has a lot more stamina than me. Guys, I moved countries. I started a whole new thing. Changed my entire life. I'm so tired. You have a right to be tired, bestie. I'm not mad at you. (laughs) I wanted cute and fun and not a whole lot of thinking. And I did end up thinking a lot more than I thought I would think over the summer season, to be fair. There were things that I had no intention of watching that really turned out to be the best things that we watched this season. And there were things that I was really excited for that turned out to be mad duds. I did not expect to be watching Be My Favorite and Wedding Plan. And Be My Favorite and Wedding Plan ended up being my favorite things that I watched this season. Conversely, I was stoked for Hidden Agenda. And that literally almost made me give up on T Bundit. <laughs> we are the podcast of breaking up with people and getting back with them the next week. Oh my God, we're so <laughs> bad at it. We are the worst exes in creation. We're the ones who are outside your window with a boombox three days later. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. <laughs> there we go, aging ourselves again. The kids are like, what's a boombox? <laughs> is that like a wireless speaker sure <laughs> oh god if the kids don't know what a boombox is they deserve to suffer but yeah so i think all in all for me i went back to some of my roots this season i didn't watch a lot <laughs> ben despite promising not to overwhelm himself also went back to his roots a little in that he watched pretty much everything i watched so much And in the end, we came away with some interesting takeaways. And one of those takeaways, I'm just going to do deep breaths and some stretching before we get into this one. Okay, Ben, who is the girl you tried this season? I will acknowledge the shows that rated poorly before we announce this. Low Frequency. You earned a six. What a mess. Stay by my side. What the hell is happening, Taiwan? Oh my fucking God, why are you? I still hate you. Be mine, superstar. My goodness. Minato's laundromat to how you let me down. Hidden agenda. What a snooze. I feel like the thing all those, though, had in common is that they didn't really try. Exactly. And that is the key component of Girl You Tried. And so, our unexpected winner of Girl You Tried for Fall 23 is MAME for Wedding Plan. I cannot believe we are about to defend Meme on this podcast, but let's go. Here's the thing. I'm not over this. 
Y'all hated this show. And y'all need to think about yourselves over this one. We have been criticizing Mame's work since 2018 with Love by Chance. And then there's Tarn Type. And then there's Don't Say No. Love in the Air. We have given her so much feedback about the stereotypes she chooses to use, the kind of stories that she's choosing to tell. And so we get to Wedding Plan, and we have a show with two self-actualized queer leads with lesbians in a critical role. And there was so much negative commentary about Siloam, and I'm not over it, because essentially the commentary boils down to hating Siloam for being a closeted gay man. I was closeted for 11 years. I feel some kind of way about the way y'all talked about Siloam. Mame wrote one of the most surprisingly compelling queer narratives about queer issues grounded in queer reality that we've seen this whole year, and the show flopped for it. We, as a fandom, in my opinion, have told on ourselves as a result. This show was good. There are no caveats about MAME for this show. She did a good job here. She fucking tried, and y'all didn't like her for it. <sighs> okay, so <laughs> I am concurring that Meme tried. Meme is the literal girl who tried this season. And so she definitely wins the Girl You Tried award. But. <laughs> <laughs> Wedding plan is too good for the show to win it, which is why Mame is winning it. The show succeeded at what it tried doing, so it does not count for a Girl You Tried Award. Mame counts for a Girl You Tried Award. We gotta read fandom a little bit. We might throw some words for fandom on this podcast, but we don't really get into it. But I'm about to get into it because some of y'all looking real funny in the light. I need some of you to check yourselves. I need some of you to look at what the genre has done, what it is doing, what it's trying to do, and let the thing evolve. I'm not feeling what's emanating of summer fandom right now. Some of the vibes are rancid, yo. And I need some of y'all to really look long and hard at why you're here. Are you standing together or are you here as voyeurs? On a lighter note, if we had to give Girl You Tried to an actual project this season, who would we give it to? Hmm. I would give it to Why Are You for the acting. Yes, that is fair. I did not like it, but I'd never liked the Why Are You story. You can tell that this was made probably on one of the smallest budgets we may have seen in a while, but they put the effort forward. So, 
If you all wanted a non-mame option for Girl You Tried, why are you Korea? They did their best. It was not good enough. But they tried. So, the real answer, the girl who tried is mame. The okay, yes, but we're not awarding mame things answer. I'm giving her an award! You did good, girl! On to the future. We got a couple of things we know we're going to be talking about next season. There's some stuff that might release we're not certain about. Next season, before the Vibe Awards, we are going to be discussing Only Friends, Dangerous Romance, I Feel You Linger in the Air, Kisaki Dear to Me, What Did You Eat Yesterday Too, and my personal weatherman. So these are things that we're watching now. There are a couple of things that might be coming up, but unlikely to be completed by the time we move into the winter series. One more show that I will be forcing Nini to watch. You will be watching Love in Translation. It is one of those shows this year. If you get to the end and you still say that, of course I'll watch it. Ha! I'll tell you tomorrow morning, girl. It's going to drop at 1030. I'm texting you right after. <laughs> Between now and the winter series, GMMTV is going to put out its 2024 slate of offerings. So when we come to you in the winter, we're going to have a lot to talk about. But for now, that is going to wrap us up on the Fall Lanny app and on the Fall series as a whole. Short but sweet this time. We will see you guys in the winter. We out. Say bye to the people, Ben. Peace.